And welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. You could also chime in via Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat. We're going to cover two more schools today, Temple and Delaware on tap. So we'll hear about their prospects from two guests. And we'll also get to your phone calls at 201-939-4513. A reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live is presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes. Before we get into the nuts and bolts with respect to some of these college prospects, the big news across the NFL early this morning was the fact that the Seahawks hammered out a long-term deal with Russell Wilson. Mm -hmm. A four-year, $140 million deal, according to multiple reports, $65 million in signing bonus, and he is now the highest-paid quarterback in the National Football League, and he's now contractually tied to the team through the 2023 season because he was entering the final year of his contract. Not a surprise that he is the most highly paid quarterback in the NFL because it's all about timing in the National Football League. It's about when your contract expires because you and your reps are going to look at, Paul, the previous contract to determine the starting point for the negotiation. So I don't think anybody should be you know, caught off guard by those developments and as far as everybody who I think wasted their energy and time over speculation that the Seahawks would trade him, I think was completely out of their minds. A 30-year-old quarterback in his prime? Come on. I mean, who's getting rid of that guy? So, you know, that to me played right into the media. Wait a second right here. You actually needed more evidence, more evidence to indicate that people were out of their minds? No, I did not need this story to confirm that. To think that Russell Wilson might be traded to New York? Well, or anywhere. As the internet continued to float out there amongst the stars? My goodness. You you, you mean to tell me what the internet says is not true? <laughs> I'm, I'm appalled by this thought. I know. The internet is not true. Who knew? Startling development. Wow. Okay. But in all seriousness. Anyway, yes, in all seriousness, you're right. This is how it goes in the NFL. One guy sets the bar for the salaries, and then the next guy who's up for a contract renewal at that position immediately smashes the bar, and on and on and on we go. In five years... Patrick Mahomes will actually be the majority owner of the Kansas City Chiefs. <laughs> He'll have enough money to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how ridiculous are we getting with this? Well, it continues to increase based on the cap, of course. Okay, on Good Morning Football this morning, NFL Network talked about how Russell Wilson now has 15% of the Seahawks salary cap tied up in his contract. That is so absurd. It is so bogus. It is so ridiculous. No one player on any 53-man football team should take up 15% of their cap space. That's insanity. It's bad for the game is what it is. Well, it just puts a lot of emphasis on the draft, Paul. I mean, that's essentially what it does. That's why executives, when they build their team, they say to themselves, hey, we're eventually going to have to pay the quarterback. Whether we draft him now, we draft him years later, eventually that first contract's going to expire. How do you now round out your team? You've got to knock through with your picks consistently. It's not just once every five years. I got a better idea. This is the surest fire way to keep your salary cap down. Play without a quarterback. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Good luck with that. That'll be uh, quite the task if you uh, attempt to do that. But, you know, this is the stress and the strain that it puts on NFL teams once they have to pay their quarterback that they're going to have to figure out what exactly they can do to help shape the rest of the roster. And, you know, I don't blame any team for wanting to invest in a quarterback that performs consistently, especially on the highest level. You just need to say, hey, what is the next most important position and how do we want to designate our cap space accordingly? And I think that's what every team is challenged in doing. See, you have to understand, I don't think the Giants are in uncharted territory on an island, Paul. I think every team is in the same boat. Once that rookie contract expires for the quarterback, now it's okay. Hey, how much money do we pay him? And then how do we manage to maintain a competitive roster at the same time simultaneously? Well, I, I know our guest is going to be coming Indeed. up momentarily, so I don't want to take up any more time on this. But when you've got quarterbacks making $30 million a year on the cap, you have defensive pass rushers making, what, $23 million now, the Khalil Max of the world. Uh, you've got offensive linemen making up to $16 million a year on the cap. And then you've got your bottom feeders. It's, it's a league now of haves and have-nots. There's no longer middle class in the NFL. 
because of the way that this business structure has been established. I can't stand it. I think it's horrible. I think it's bad for the game. It, it rips a team unity. It rips a togetherness. It's, it's a bad, bad system. Again, I loved it the way it was years ago with Plan B. It restricted certain amount uh, uh, of economic uh, inflation. I know the players hated it because they weren't making these billion-dollar deals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? The quality of play was better because you could keep teams together, and everything was much more equitable. What well, are you going to do? The game has certainly changed, and we'll get more into the structure of the salary cap and perhaps what will occur after this new CBA expires. But right now, let's shift gears to college prospects, as we get you said for the 2019 NFL Draft. And we're now joined by Mark Narducci, who covers the Temple Owls for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mark, you got Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino here on Giants.com. Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate the time. How's everything? Hey, everything's great. Good to talk to you guys. Well, thank you so much for joining us again this year, Mike. I know you're busy with uh, Sixers basketball these days, but you were able to carve out a little bit of time for us. And, and again, we appreciate it very much. Uh, first thing about Temple is that they've got themselves a pretty good cornerback who is uh, drawing a lot of attention as a potential, I guess, high second-round pick is kind of what I'm hearing. I don't think Rocky Asin is going to be a, a first-rounder, but this guy certainly uh, got the eye of a lot of NFL scouts. Oh, there's no, there's no question, Paul. And the other thing is, I, I saw the other day, and you can take mock drafts with a grain of salt, but Charlie Casserly, who knows a little bit about evaluating talent, had him as the 23rd player taken in the first round of his latest mock draft. Sounds a little yeah, high, which, but what do you know? <laughs> yeah, which, which surprised me. And Charles Davis, who I also respect, had him as a first-rounder as mm. well. But, but whether he goes in the first or early second, I – uh, he he's certainly on the radar, and uh, he just had a tremendous season. You know, he only played one season at Temple yeah. um, uh, be, because he was at Presbyterian College, the Division NAIA Division Two school. Um, but he really, uh, by about mid-season, they weren't throwing to him, throwing at him anymore. He, he he's they listed him at the combine as uh, six foot, one hundred ninety-two pounds. And what I like about him is his toughness. He's not a blazer, although he ran a four-five-one at the combine. But what I love about him is you can play him in press coverage. And the other thing is he's got great toughness and he's a good tackler. And you don't always see that from you know the cornerback position. So I, I think he's going to be a very, very good player. He's a fearless player. Uh, if he does get beaten, and he and he did get beaten at times. Uh, he just forgets about it and goes to the next play. He's never too high or low, and I, I think he's going to be a real, real good prospect in this draft. The one thing that I thought, Mark, from looking at some of the, the cut-ups that I did see on him, I wrote down I'd like to see him get stronger, especially against the run, and also uh, when he does try to jam receivers in the NFL, he's going to have to be a bit more powerful when he does that. Do you, do you sense that he realizes he's going to have to, I don't want to say bulk up necessarily, but he does need to enhance his strength? Yes, there's no question about it. That's a very uh, astute observation by you. Um, and, and he has been working on that from what I've been told, told in the offseason. I mean, when you're playing cornerback, you're not going to get a guy most times that has just everything together, blazing speed, his strength as, as anything uh, like that. So, yes, he'll have to do that. But, but despite that, I still think he's going to uh, be able to, to do well in press coverage. And the other thing is, Paul, he did do 18 reps at the combine, which is, I don't know, for a cornerback, uh, to yeah. me that doesn't seem bad. No, no, not not bad, not bad. But it's different pushing a barbell as opposed to right, pushing up right. against a six foot two receiver yeah. who's trying to beat you downfield. <laughs> right, right. And the other thing is, um, I, I think he's got pretty good leaping ability, and 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 he 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 went up against a lot of bigger receivers. They tried to take advantage of him on fade patterns, and I and I thought he he fared pretty well there. So, uh, like I said, I'm 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 pretty high on him. Uh, he, he wanted to get tested. I mean, the reason he went to Temple was his school decided to uh, no longer give scholarships. So he was able to transfer. He didn't have to sit out. But he also did want to test himself against better competition. And uh, immediately, almost immediately, when he arrived in school, they, they knew that he was going to be their best 
best defensive player. Well, I'm glad you hit on that, Mark, because, you know, I think a lot of people say to themselves when you have such a small sample size, similar to Dwayne Haskins and Kyla Murray, the big debate is, well, they've only been starters for one year. So mm-hmm. is that a flash or is there enough substance to say, hey, these players can be franchise quarterbacks? Now, I know you mentioned you're very high on Rocky Sin, but when you take into consideration, like you said, it's just one year against better competition while he was at Temple. The rest of the resume is against lower level competition at Presbyterian in college my question is do you think there's enough substance that even NFL scouts don't have as many questions at this point when evaluating the tape I, I do Lance because um, because he did so well at Presbyterian he set a school record for interceptions I get it the competition was less but he was still dominating it uh, you know he played almost right away uh, when he was there and he got a lot of reps and he played for three three years so he, he had kind of outgrown that competition, and, and, and he stepped here, and he was already the best, the best player on the field a lot of times. So I, I, don't, I don't think that that's a problem at all, that, that he only uh, uh, was at an FCS school for one year. How about his study habits? Were you able to tell much in terms of his work ethic and his football acumen and, and the intangibles that obviously go into making up a top-flight corner in the league? Well, all I could do, Paul, is, is talk, you know, what the coaches would tell. And they, they just, they raved about him, how, how he picked up the system so quickly, uh, his habits and everything like that. So I, I, have to, I have to trust what the coaches said, uh, mm-hmm. that he just picked up everything so quickly. And, and, and he even said it wasn't, it wasn't that difficult. He said football's football, and he, he did his work and put it all together and, and you know, was able to to really uh, prosper in in a different system. I want to move to uh, another player in the secondary, Mark, and uh, Delvon Randall, who's played the safety position, is uh, somebody else that obviously is being considered for the NFL draft, even if he doesn't go high, perhaps making an impact on the practice squad or so forth. I mean, what do you see in terms of his upside? Certainly somebody that's had some starting experience and very active, it seems, as a ball hawk during the course of his career at Temple. Right. That that's the thing about Delvon Randall. He he's a he's a ball hawk, and he's another one. He is a I think he's a very a very good tackler uh, as well. The knock against him is, is going to be his speed. Uh, even at safety, there there's some there's some questions about uh, you know how how he's going to be able to uh, cover cover some ground. But but as far as a toughness and an intelligence, he again. He's a guy who's in the in the right spot at the right time. He prepped for a year and then came to Temple and didn't start right away, but played a lot on a, on a conference championship team. And then um, uh, the the last couple of years, last two years, he's been a first team all, all conference performer. So I like Delvon, but I think the numbers and and the size too as well. I, I think that they're going to keep him down, either drafted late or. or if he's not drafted, I think he'd be a pretty pretty desired uh, free agent signing. I think another guy who kind of fits into that category is Michael Dogby from, from Morris Plains, New Jersey. Everybody up in North Jersey is well aware of him. I know he had a lot of accolades coming out of high school, and and his career at Temple was, was, was pretty good. Uh, what do you think about his chances of making it into a camp? Well, a couple things about Michael Dogby. He's you wonder about his size. He's six three and and, uh, and about two eighty five. At least that was his size at, at Temple. <laughs> Who knows? But but the, the thing about him is he was injury free this year, and and that really um, really really helped him because he he really put it together. If you look at the tape of their Maryland game, that was one of the best individual performances uh, that I've seen. I think he had two and a half sacks, and it was a Maryland team that had beaten Texas, was 2-0, and was feeling pretty good about themselves, and Temple went in their building and, and beat them, and Dogby, to me, was the, uh, the ringleader of that. Really, really led the, uh, the defensive uh, rush that game, and you know, I thought he, he just had a great season. You know, he had 12 and a half tackles for loss. He had seven sacks. And when you're getting that from an interior lineman, you know, that's pretty good. And the other thing about him, guys, he is one of the strongest players you'll ever you'll ever see. I, I did a story about him about the, the time at Temple before his senior year where he benched over 500 pounds. He benched 505 pounds. Mm, wow. So I think 
he was not invited to the combine. He was very disappointed. But I think if he were, uh, he would have kind of uh, he may have set some records because he is just a, a strong person. And and like a lot of these Temple kids, you won't find a better character person than Michael Dogby. And I, I'm not sure there was a more respected person on the team. He wasn't a big talker. He he, uh, he let his actions do do the talking, but he was a leader, and the people saw just the the unrelentless work ethic he had, and they followed him that way. Well, those intangibles will help him, Lance. I just wonder if he might not be better suited to playing an end in a four three as opposed to playing on the interior, because I don't think his frame really suits the interior of the NFL very well. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, Paul, I, I don't know if he has the speed to be an, an outside okay. rusher like that. I, okay. I think if he's going to make it, it's either going to have to, you know, be as a as a tackle or as a nose or something like that so he can use his strength. I I don't see him as as a guy that could really play outside. To be very honest well, with you, how, how much more bulk can he add to his frame? Is it possible he could play at three hundred pounds in the in the NFL? I think so. I, I mean, I think so. Maybe not a whole lot more, but I. I'm not sure he's going to have to play it a lot more because the other thing, he's got a very quick first step. Um, so, so I think that, that'll help him as well. But um, I, I, his strength is going to be his attribute. And, and, okay. and if, if he's going to make an NFL team and, and make the NFL, it's going to be because of that. We're talking with Temple Owls beat writer Mark Narducci of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And Mark, last one before we let you go. On the offensive side of the ball, Temple also has a running back who's been described as an extremely violent type of player. And if you watch him, I think that's a appropriate label, and that's Ryquel Armstead. What do you see, though, his role being perhaps on the NFL level? Because it doesn't seem like he was asked to do a lot in the passing game, if I'm correct. So, if anything, is he more of a first, second down back? Or do you see him growing and expanding his role perhaps on the next level? Well, I, I that's a good question, Lance. I thought he could have been utilized more because I think he is a better receiver um, than he showed, but you're right. They didn't let him. I thought they should have gotten him out in space. I mean, as a senior, he only had eight receptions. Uh, so, but I think he's a very intriguing prospect. Um, not a not a speed burner, um, but he but he can get to the outside. But he can run between the tackles. And the other thing about him is he is a tough kid. You know, he played defensive end. He, he in one game he had he rushed for 100 yards and had a sack. <laughs> so you don't see that combination a whole lot. Um, he played on special teams, and and that's the one thing about the Temple players. Their their star players play on special teams, and I think that's going to help guys like him uh, in the draft. So I think he he can be a good player. There, there's some durability concerns. He missed a couple games this year with an ankle. He was banged up his junior year, never missed a game, but he had like a like a turf toe type situation, and and he kind of had a subpar season. He came back really strong his senior year um he's very good in pass protection so he does all that other other stuff about him i i look at him as maybe you know a seventh round pick maybe a free agent uh type guy but i i I think there's a there's room for guys like him, especially because of his special teams versatility. Well, and Mark, that's a fair point about special teams because, you know, a player that we spoke to you about last year and now obviously is with the Giants, Sean Chandler, who has carved out a role as mm-hmm. a secondary player who also contributes on special teams. So I think if anything, I think the Giants realize guys like that who may not be coming from the big powerhouse conferences, they understand what it means to grind things out and what it takes to make a roster seems to be across yeah, the board. That, yeah, that that's a good point, Lance. And and it's interesting that you mentioned Chandler because Chandler had the type of character coming out of Temple that I think Michael Dogby has. You know, I, I think that they're they're in that same class of just just people that really weren't real vocal, but everyone followed because they respected them so much because they they worked so hard and. The old coach at Temple, Jeff Collins, and even before him, Matt Rule, they made it a point not only to help their team by having these uh, star players on special teams, but they felt it was an obligation to help them try to get to the next level. And they they always said that that's the best way. So, 
So these guys all played special teams. Like Delvon Randall, he would be a, he'd be an excellent special teams player. In fact, he even uh, was back returning punts because he was their best guy at, at catching punts. Um, so yeah, they they. Um, so the special teams will help all these guys, I think, that we talked about. Before we let you go, Mark, just a quick thumbnail on Chandler, who, when he got to Giants camp, did so well that the coaches were just praising him left and right. And by the time they got to the 53-man roster, not too many people were surprised that he made it because he was getting so many accolades during the course of the summer and into the preseason. Uh, if you could refresh our memories as to what you thought about him and what his upside was, the Giants right now are going with Peppers and Buffet as their two penciled-in spring starters this season. But you know what? Uh, there's certainly an opportunity there, at least in the sub-package, if nothing else, for Chandler to get more reps. He did earn them uh, late in the season last year as guys were falling down due to injury. He was getting more and more time in the sub-package, and the coaches are giving him a big thumbs up. Yeah, well, what what I like about him, Paul, is the fact that, you know, at, at his career at Temple, he was a four-year starter, first of all. He, he started his first two years as a cornerback. They moved him to safety uh, partially because teams weren't kind of throwing at him and they wanted to use him more. And they also thought that that would be his position in the NFL because, again, he, he's not a – He's not a speed burner. Now, the one thing he needed to do coming out of Temple is he had to get stronger. I don't know, you know, how much that has happened. You guys see every game uh, with, with the Giants, he but, yeah, he has. but as far as in, yeah, as far as intelligence and work and everything like that, and, and and the ability to anticipate a play, which, as you guys know, that's what you want in a safety. Uh, I, I, I think that I think he is going to have a, a solid, solid NFL career, and it did not surprise me in the least that that he made the team last year. He is Temple Owls beat writer Mark Narducci of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mark, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. We'll let you get back to breaking down flagrant one fouls versus flagrant <laughs> two fouls in the Sixers net series. Mark, thank you. <laughs> Hey, guys, I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. You got it. Thanks again, Mark. That is Mark Narducci, kind enough to give us a few minutes and reflect on Sean Chandler because it's all tied in to the New York Giants here. He just said something in that interview, which we rarely hear from any of our media guys who are covering these NCAA teams, and that is Temple changed the guy's position because they thought that's what he would do better at in the pros. How many times have you heard that? Hardly ever, right? No, because most teams are just looking, what can we do to get the player to help us win? That's it. what can we do to help the player thrive on the next we level? We talk about all it all the time. All the yeah. time. NCAA yeah. coaches are in the business to win games for their boosters, well, for their, their loans, jobs too. for their jobs, yeah. for their ticket sales. Here's a case where we've got, we've got our Philly Inquirer writers saying they moved Chandler from corner to safety because they thought that was better for his long-term professional potential. That... That's unheard of. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Interesting. No, I think that was a very interesting point. And I think it's also great to, a year later, to hear from the people that we brought up on the program, and then the player makes the Giants, and then you sort of look back at how well, the you brought year, him up. I was a good catch as, by Well, you. it just, when he brought up special teams, it triggered, and I said, Sean Chandler is a great example of what he's talking about, and... He's got the Temple connection, so it was nice to at least uh, reflect back on some of the conversations we had last year. We're going to be talking with Kevin Tresolini, the Delaware News Journal, coming up. But in between, let's try to squeeze in a caller or two as we open up the conversation for you here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Doug is in Rochester. Doug, welcome aboard. What do you have for us? Hey, how you doing, Lance? How you doing, Paul? Hi. Doing very well, Doug. What's on your mind? Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about the, the draft pick 6 or 17 Um it's more likely the Giants would get a top pass rusher, either um, Williams or uh, or Oliver or Allen one. But if all the pass rushers are gone at 17, the top pass rushers, and Greedy Williams is there at cornerback, you think that's a good pick for the Giants at 17? Or you should have taken a tackle? You think Greedy Williams is sitting there? Well, a yeah, tackle meaning think. you're talking about an offensive tackle in that position, yeah. right? Like a right tackle? Yeah. Once again, yeah, right tackle, I, I'm not... Greedy Williams, a quarterback, like Greedy Williams is sitting there at 17, mm-hmm. or even White, a linebacker, sitting there, you think those are good choices at 17 or not? Well, I think 
in terms of Devin White being there at 17, I think that would be very good value, in my opinion. I know there's some question marks about how he'll transition, but I think White, from a value standpoint, would be a solid pick at 17. Greedy Williams, I've seen some drafts where he's being projected going into the high teens. So, once again, if they feel like he's the best guy on the board, I think that equates to value and need. Pat Shermer, when he spoke to the media on the conference call yesterday, was asked about some of the questions in the secondary, and based on what he said, it's not as if they don't have options, Paul, but right now the starting third corner, I think, is a complete question mark. Yeah, I really believe, to answer the caller in a more generic sense, I do believe that there will be value at offensive tackle, also on the defensive line, and also at cornerback at 17. Now, which way they decide to go based on which player is the highest on their board at the time, we can't tell you that. But I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that those positions probably will all hold value at that spot. I think they're deep enough that there'll be there'll be a selection of guys they can go to there. Well, well let's say let's well, say Montez Sweat and well, Brian Burns are there. Them. Those well, are two other choices. Well, better they for a right tackle in the second round than a than the linebacker than the cornerback. You think there'll be more better chances of getting a, a good, better right tackle in that later round? Well, I, I I've said all along, and I'm not going to shy away from this. In the Giants, you know, first four picks of this draft. Remember, two in the first, one in the second, one in the third. They've got to get a minimum of three guys who are going to significantly contribute to this team. Now, Pat Shermer yesterday was asked, do you think this draft has two or three potential defensive starters in it for you? Do you think you can get them? And he said, well, that's the idea. That's that's what we're going to try to do. So that says to me, okay, that two of their first Three selections will probably be defense. And I don't care I don't care if it's it's six and thirty-seven or it's six and seventeen. Two of them are probably gonna be defense, and the other one's probably gonna be an offensive tackle. Okay, that Pat Shermer, is he on the that that talk is he on the Giants app? Uh, can I catch him on the app? Uh, well, that wasn't you know, recorded. You can, you can read the transcript. The full transcript of his conference call is up on Giants.com, Doug. Uh, and we'll let you go. Live. He's not talking live. No, he, well, he was no. talking, but they didn't have the exact audio. But you can get the full transcript and appreciate the phone call with respect to what Shermer said. Eli Manning was on the conference call. Sterling Shepard was on the conference call. All three of those individuals spoke to the media yesterday. And Shermer, one of the takeaways was that, you know, the depth in this draft could allow the Giants to bring in a few defensive players. Eli Manning talked about the outlook of this season and mentioned that he learned of the Odell Beckham trade while watching TV and got a few text messages and also said that over the last month or so was when he had conversations with Pat Shermer and Dave Gentleman about that he is going to be the starting quarterback and he is definitely coming back. So, you know, there's been conversation. They've been in communication all offseason. Well, as we told people, Gettleman met with Eli Manning right after the season was over, and everyone said, well, what was the speculation involved in that conversation? We now know. Eli told Gettleman, I'm healthy. I feel good. I plan to come back. I want to come back. And Gettleman said, hey, due diligence, i got to watch the tape, which is also what we told you on this program how many times since the season ended. Gettleman wanted to be sure. He wanted to double-check the tape and make sure that his conviction about bringing back Eli was going to be accurate. He didn't want to commit until he went back and double-checked the tape. Well, he did. He double-checked the tape. And within a month and a half, two months' time, he was able to lock in Eli and say, yeah, you know what? We definitely want you back. We want to remind you, Big Blue Kickoff Live presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes. All right, let's transition back to college prospect talk as we now bring in Kevin Tresolini of the Delaware News Journal who covers the Delaware Blue Hens as we continue to set the stage for the 2019 NFL Draft. Kevin, you got Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Giants.com. Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate the time. How's everything? Hey, good. I appreciate you guys having me on. Hope you're all doing well. Well, thank you, Kevin. Same to you as well. And my goodness, uh, <laughs> I could go back to uh, to Delaware and talk about Scott Bruner with you for a little while, but that would be before your time, I'm sure. And it's many years actually, since... <laughs> actually, that would not be before my time. I graduated from Delaware with Scotty Bruner. Did you really? 
Yes, I did. Scott Scott was my broadcast partner on some NEC college football games some years ago after he did Rutgers, and we had a sensational time working together. He's a, he's a really great guy. Uh, but but to bring it fast forward to today, uh, the Delaware Blue Hens do have one particular prospect whose name was bantied about a lot at the Combine. That would be Adderley the Safety. And I'd love to get your thoughts on what his draft prospects are and how much his stock has risen since the risen since the season ended. Yeah, Nasir Adderley is is uh, is quite a ball player. He is he is certainly going to be the second highest the second highest draft pick in in Blue Hen history behind Joe Flacco, who was the 18th choice overall by the Baltimore Ravens in 2007 uh, out of Delaware. Uh, the second highest draft pick out of Delaware was uh, was Rich Gannon, who had a pretty mm-hmm. fair career himself, yeah. a little bit of a late bloomer. He was taken 98th overall uh, in 1987 by New England. Uh, I think I think Nasir is going to go a lot higher than that. You know, the uh, the mock drafts I've seen have him late first round, early second round. Now I don't cover the NFL. We have an Eagles beat reporter, uh, my colleague Martin Frank. Um, he did. Uh, he 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 and some of my uh, USA Today Network colleagues did a mock draft this week. They did not have Nasir going in the first round. Uh, I think I think there's more speculation about him going in the second round. But all it takes, obviously, is uh, is somebody who likes him, and he is certainly a gifted player uh, who who I think will bring a lot of talent to that safety position in the NFL. First thing someone's going to say is level of comp. Obviously, oh, I played FCS school. All right, we got to take him down a notch. Explain to those folks who haven't seen him play what makes him such a good prospect in your eyes. Why is he such a terrific football player, no matter what level he plays at? Well, you know, he he, he was he was recruited by by the FBS programs, but uh, Nasir had some had some academic issues in um, when he was in high school. And they, he, he would have, he would have required a little bit of diligence on the part of, of the FBS schools to really kind of push him and prod him while he was still in high school. If he had been a little bit of a higher level prospect, more of them would have done that. Delaware decided to do that. Delaware actually really kind of helped him get on the right track academically while he was still in high school to kind of allow him to meet his academic uh, potential his senior year to make him eligible to be uh, a, a, a college player. Obviously, FCS and FBS programs have the same academic uh, uh, curriculum, um, NCAA requirements. Obviously, each school then has its own admission standards. Sure. But a lot, of, a lot of FBS schools were a little bit cool on him because they weren't so sure he was going to be able to make it academically. Um, and if he had been maybe a little bit higher level prospect, they would have, you know, you know, maybe kind of come after him a little bit more. Delaware went in there and really kind of helped him design his academic program uh, his senior year, and he really kind of met his potential. He wasn't a bad student. He kind of called, called himself just a little bit of a lazy student. So he did pretty well. You know, he got his grades up. He committed to Delaware pretty early. Uh, some other schools saw that. Wake Forest swooped in and and brought him down there for a visit the week before uh, signing day. He decided to stick with his uh, with his Delaware uh, commitment and, and, and came to the Blue Hens. Started all 45 games during his career with Delaware. At cornerback his first couple years, at safety his last two years. Had a little tryout at wide receiver during the spring of, I believe that was his sophomore year. Uh, was a fine kickoff return man as well. The thing that really impressed me, I would say, was just the incredible athletic ability he showed. He just made some incredible plays at times. A couple acrobatic one-handed interceptions. Had one at Towson uh, when he was a junior. Um, he had one just this past season down down at at, uh, at Richmond. Uh, made the made the uh, ESPN highlights a couple times doing that. And he had the kickoff return uh, this past season. At New Hampshire, uh, Delaware was set up for an onside kick, so he didn't really have any protection. The ball kind of bounced back to him. He decided to return it anyway, and the first tackler who <laughs> greeted him, he just kind of knocked him over and then sprinted for a touchdown. It was it was just a, it was just an amazing scene, and he and he got the ESPN play of the day for that one too. So right. you know, an FCS kid, you know, getting 
getting two ESPN top plays is pretty impressive. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, again, I don't have the eyes of a football coach. I have the eyes of a sports writer. But just, you know, just the athletic ability he brought to that position was the thing that I always took note of. You know, you know he had, he had, he had uh, uh, as, a, as a senior, um, he was the only player in FCS with 160-plus tackles and nine-plus interceptions over the last two years. So I think that statistically says something about him as well. Oh, absolutely. Those numbers jump off the page, Kevin. My question is, you mentioned he played corner and safety as starting experience at both spots. There's some talk about on the NFL level, teams may find it more comfortable putting him back at corner. I know you said you have the eye of a sports writer, not necessarily an NFL analyst, but from what you've seen is there more strength to his game when he lined up at corner, or was there not that much of a difference versus when he was at safety? Yeah, again, again, he did very, he did very well at both at, at both positions. I personally, again, and 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 this is an uneducated football opinion on my part. I I see him more as a safety. Uh, the things that I've read kind of project him more that way. But he certainly has the versatility. Um, you know, to play in a nickel situation, to go back and forth, to play both. Um, you know, the athletic, the athletic ability he brought to the field for Delaware really kind of jumped off the table. He could really cover a lot of ground. Uh, he could he could make plays. He could get in the air. He had great hands. Uh, you know, when he got the ball, he could do things with the ball in his hands. So um, I I, cer- I certainly see where 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 that where that association can be made that he could go back to corner. I just I just kind of like him being, you know, you know, have, having a little bit more of the freedom to play safety, um, you know, more, more, more of a free safety, obviously, than a strong safety. I think what, what when I looked at the tape of him and I just looked at some of my notes, he reminded me a lot of, of what Jabril Peppers was at Michigan, although Peppers played a little bit more in the box. I think Adderley is more of a, of a free safety than he is a strong. Definitely. But but the, the fact that he was so versatile and was able to do so many different things roaming all around the field and do a little bit of everything and be so productive, to, to me, I, I, just, I, I just think that that kind of versatility right now is so valued by teams in the National Football League, especially a safety who on occasion can come down and play the slot. It's a big deal. Oh yeah, without a doubt, and I and I think and I think that has kind of been the key to his climb uh, up the charts uh, because at the beginning at the beginning of his senior season, uh, Nasir was certainly looked at a guy who oh yeah this guy you know this guy is certainly going to get an NFL opportunity and you know more likely than not he'll be he'll be drafted um, you know most Delaware guys who get a shot in the NFL are are are, are, are signed as free agents you know Delaware doesn't have a guy drafted every year. Um, you know, more 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 often than not, they get a couple of guys who, who who get free agent tryouts, and often they have nice careers. You know, Mike Adams, who who uh, has yeah. had a long career as a as a safety, Paul Warlow mm-hmm. as a linebacker. You know, fine Delaware players in the NFL, free agent signees. But I think I think as the season went along and more people got a look at him, I mean, there was there were there were there were one or two guys in NFL shirts at every at every practice in August. As more and more guys got a look at him. They saw that his skills are pretty wide ranging, um, and you know sometimes sometimes in games I mean there was there was there was there was one game this past season when when uh, Coach Danny Rocco, the Delaware head coach, actually had to pull Masir aside and actually give him a sideline tackling lesson. <laughs> like Masir, this is what you have to do. This is how you have to really kind of get in there to make a tackle. But uh, you know that. That's you know that's something that's going to happen once in a while with guys, but I think I think he 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 climbed he climbed up the charts in in the in the eyes of NFL observers because he does have that ability to 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 play different positions. He has versatility and he's very athletic. How much, if anything, did his cousin Herb Adderley, the former Packers great, have an influence on his career? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, Herb has been a great influence on him. I've talked to Herb a couple times. About that, obviously, Herb is a lot older uh, than him, but but they've really developed quite a bond the last couple of years uh, since since Nasir's grandfather died. Uh, Nasir's grandfather and Herb were first cousins. That's where that's where the connection, the family connection, is. Uh, so you know, Nasir is a couple generations younger uh, than the great Herb Adderley, who who uh, you know, it sounds like we're close to the same age. You know, we saw him play, and he was pretty pretty <laughs> yeah. amazing. 
as a player. So you can see, and, and, and it's great talking to Nasir about her because he really does have a profound respect and admiration for Herb Adderley, what he represents, the kind of player he was. He really admires and respects him and, 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 and what he has done. And, and uh, the last few years when they've kind of gotten close, they've spoken regularly. Uh, Herb has seen him play. Uh, Herb has had some health problems lately. He lives in South Jersey. It's been a little bit tougher for him to get around. Uh, but uh, Nasir has greatly valued uh, that relationship and and Herb's ability to just kind of, uh, you know, give him some advice and, and kind of talk about playing football and, 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 and just how to make best use of, uh, of your abilities. Uh, you know, Nasir has certainly made Herb proud. But the great thing is, uh, this is one thing that's really impressed me about Nasir, is he really appreciates uh, what Herb Adderley uh, is and was and, um, and, and, what, and what he means to Nasir. It's, 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 really, it's really kind of impressive. We're talking with Delaware Blue Hens beat writer Kevin Tresolini of the Delaware News Journal. You brought up Nasir's special teams dynamics as a kick returner. I'm just curious, Kevin, how much was he utilized outside of returning kickoffs in terms of punt work as well as coverage teams? Did they expose him to that at all? Because that could be something, obviously, that he's asked to do on the NFL level. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't recall a whole lot. You know, again, that's not something I would have taken great note of, but. Um, you know the ninety the ninety two yard run back up at up at up at New Hampshire, you know was the thing that really stands out. He did he did return. I don't have the stats in front of me. You know he did he did return some other kicks. Not so much on punts though. I don't I don't recall him being used that much on punts. Certainly something I I could see him doing. However, and 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 you're exactly right. I mean at the NFL level, um, he would probably be a guy who would be. Uh, needed on special teams and I would think could be a valuable member of of, uh, of 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 special teams units no doubt about it one more guy before we let you go and it's a little bit sure. off the beaten trail that's Wes Hills the running back who was at Delaware and averaged six and a half yards a carry in his years there before he went to Slippery Rock and last year averaged over seven yards a carry uh, at 6'2 205 pounds I got a feeling he's going to be in somebody's camp and get a look. He's probably not going to be drafted, but somebody's going to want to look at this guy and maybe stash him on a practice squad, and maybe he's got a future. What can you tell me about Wes Hills? Somebody certainly ought to take a look at Wes Hills and bring them into their camp because, yeah, Wes Hills had a nice career at Delaware. It was a little, it was, it was injury plagued. You know, he did have some issues with injuries, but when he was healthy. Uh, I can't remember what he averaged, about eight yards a carry um, at times. He was he was really impressive, kind of a you know unusual build, kind of tall, um, you know at that at that at that at that running back spot. But he really he really got the job done uh, for the for the Blue Hens in the in the in the three seasons he played he played for Delaware before he ran into some academic issues and and lost his eligibility and then spent his last year at Slippery Rock. But you know you just you just brought up an important point when you asked me about Adderley. At Delaware, Wes Hills was a stud on special teams, running down to defend kickoffs in particular. And here is a guy who could have a long career because of his special teams abilities. Uh, former, former Delaware coach Dave Brock used to rave about what Wes Hills did on special teams in, in terms of comparing him to being better than anybody he had ever coached at some of that stuff. He was a great running back, and he always also wanted to be on the kickoff team so he could run down and make a tackle, and often <laughs> he would. Well, that type of trait is going to be extremely attractive, to your point, on the <laughs> NFL level. I mean, yeah. even if he doesn't get drafted, somebody ought to bring him in camp just for that type of energy. And that's how you get yeah. noticed during 100%. the preseason when you make those plays. 100%. He is, yeah. He is Delaware Blue Hens beat writer Kevin Tresolini of the Delaware News Journal. Kevin, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Thanks so much for coming on the program today. Thank you, Kevin. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks again for having me. You got it. Our pleasure to have Kevin Tresolini once again here on Big Blue Kickoff Live to provide some insight on Nasir Adderley. And he said potentially second-round pick from what he is hearing. Versatile guy who could play corner safety 
and contribute on special teams as well. All right, let's reopen up the phone lines as we make our way to the top of the hour. want to give you an opportunity to weigh in on a variety of subjects, including the draft at 201-939-4513, hashtag GiantsChat on Twitter. Chris is in Texas as he carries on the conversation. What's happening, Chris? Good afternoon, gentlemen. Always a pleasure. Hi. Good to hear from you. What's on your mind? All right. Uh, quarterback questions. Uh, I'll make the questions quick, or the answers could be even quick as well. Uh, one with regard to the draft, and then another question regarding uh, Rosen. Um, my quarterback that I like, not love, the best in this draft would be Daniel, Daniel Jones. Um, I pick him over Haskins because I'd rather have the legs, that athletic ability, versus the cannon arm. Quick questions on Daniel Jones, yes or no? I think I know your answer to this because you mentioned it previously, but um, do you think he's worth the 17th pick? No. Yeah, I would probably get better value, in my opinion. I think it's 17, especially if there's more defensive players still on the board. We've already mentioned the three positions just a few minutes earlier. Correct, somebody else called earlier. Which should have the appropriate value at 17. I'm not saying that Daniel Jones can't make it in the league or that somebody wouldn't like to have him, but at 17, I got a feeling his value is not going to be that high. I agree. Do you think he's worth 37? I'd consider him at 37. I'd have a much more in-depth conversation there, especially if the Giants got two defensive players at 6 and 17, and depending on what's left with the offensive line, I don't think it's crazy to think about him at 37. Yeah, I think that's a more serious consideration. The question becomes, uh, A, how badly then at that point do you want to draft an offensive tackle? Because there will be be a plug-and-play offensive tackle probably available at 37 if you did not get one in the first round. I would probably lean towards that direction. My sleeper quarterback in this draft is Jared Stinham. I've said it before. I don't know if you can get him in the third or if you have to get him in the second. But but if you're going to talk non-first-round quarterbacks, Stidham would be my guy out of Auburn. All right, Paul, I just got to address that real quick because I did want to ask you about this Rosen question. I don't want to go I don't want to go past the second round. I don't want to go past 37 for a quarterback because we did that the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. If, if we're in, we got to be all in. That's my opinion. And, that, and that's, that's fair. To Rosen. I, I don't I don't have a problem with that philosophy. Again, it comes down to who's available at 37. At that moment, you say, okay, well, what did we already grab? And then what is our player rankings or our most valuable player are still available at 37? If the quarterback is not the guy, you can't pick him. It, it all goes back to that whole thing about not wanting to force it. And I would I not for, I, I wouldn't force it. I, I, again, my opinion is based on the value, the perceived value of the depth of this draft, you should be able to get two defensive players and an offensive tackle in those first 37 picks and find guys who actually meet the appropriate value without any difficulty at all. And Chris, the other thing you have to take into consideration, you can't go into the assumption that the Cardinals are absolutely going to trade him too. I mean, that's all speculation at this point. They could very well draft Murray and keep Rosen and hold on to him for trade value if somebody gets hurt or open up a competition for them both. I tell you, I wouldn't rule that out. You know what would be really interesting? And and I wouldn't put this past Dave Gettleman either. I've said it before. I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to package something in the fourth and fifth round and tries to combine it together and move up from the bottom of the third to try to get to the top of the third round. So this way, he's got a better selection of the depth of the draft and maybe even takes a sleeper quarterback. I, I could it's see that, that happening, too. That. Funny that you say that because I was thinking along those lines, and just tell me if I'm crazy because I feel like I am. Don't feel bad. I get cold crazy all the time. It's quite all right. <laughs> That's the paisan in me as well. Um, am I crazy thinking – I? Maybe it's a prejudice, but I didn't like Rosen last year. I, I, I hate to give up 37 for him. Am I crazy to think this is a fair trade? Giants 37 and 95 for Rosen and number 65, their early third round. Is that crazy? Wow. I, I don't person- know. 
I think they could get a better offer, in my opinion, if they really opened it up truly to the rest of the market. I think somebody else would be willing to cough up a little bit more. Higher picks is what I'm referring to. Yeah, I, I to think the, the Cardinals probably would want more and probably yeah. could get more. Uh, and quite honestly, again, the problem with the Giants' perspective on this is if if you really do like Rosen, well, then you're willing to talk about making a deal even if you do have to overpay a tad. If you don't really like Rosen then you're better off, once again, like you don't want to force a pick, don't force the trade. Yeah, and listen, appreciate the phone call, Chris. Thanks so much for weighing in. The bottom line is, to your point, Paul, if you're that enamored with him, then you're willing to sacrifice resources for him. I think that's the way you got to look at it. If you're just looking, and I'm not being a Debbie Downer on Chris's hypothetical situation, but it's almost like you can only pile up so much just to make it look more appetizing. Yeah. Eventually, the team's going to be like, but we want substance. We don't just want volume. Look, if they really do like Rosen better than most, if not all of the quarterbacks in this class, they would be absolutely justified in giving up the 37. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's a quarterback that was one of the top prospects last year. He's only played 14 games under difficult circumstances. It's not like a lot has changed, I guess, is what I'm saying, Paul, since he's come out of UCLA. So the questions that were there could still very well be there. And I don't really think you saw enough in year one as a rookie where you're blown away with judgments based on a small sample size. I mean, he had a terrible offensive line. They didn't have much of a running game. And, you know, a lot of those games, they weren't very competitive. Is that a reflection on Josh Rosen after 14 games? I think, if anything, there's still upside there that if you feel you bring him into your system, you can work with him, then you're willing to give up some... Notable resources for that. Let's head back to the phone lines, and we check in with Tony in D.C. Tony, welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's on your mind? Hey, James. Thanks for having me. So Hi. I had my questions, but, Paul, you said maybe the most important thing facing professional football today. And you talked about how this these percentages being taken by quarterbacks and pass rushers are ruining the, the ultimate team sport because you can't keep, even keep a team together because of the money. Right. And with, and with that said, and this might be a little controversial, the NFL owners only have themselves to blame. They won those negotiations. They have these players under absolute draconian rookie deals and franchise tags. So when it's time to cash in, you get Mario Williams deals and Indomitian Sue deals and Kirk Cousins deals. Remember Albert Hainsworth? Oh <laughs> Remember that one? Remember when Hainsworth busted the bank for the Redskins? Yeah, I mean, and it's and it sucks. It does suck. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo is going to make thirty-seven million dollars and has done nothing. Well, that's but, the but market, the though. I mean, that's the market, got Tony. That rookie discount, well, and and they only have themselves to blame. Well, but Tony, <laughs> Tony, but Tony, in fairness, that that's how the market plays out, and and the players' union, and rightfully so, would never agree to a deal where you're going to put caps on their earning power. You wouldn't do that, Tony, in your job. Would you want to work in a market where they say you can only make as much as this? No. You you want to be able to test the market to have as highest earning power as you want. So I, I don't think it's crazy to see the NFL become of that. I mean, that's why well, the draft is important, and good GMs know they've got to make changes and they've got to make sacrifices. That's why there's so much turnover on NFL. Here, here's the thing, Tony, and, I, and I'm sure you'll agree with me because you sound like you're old enough to remember Plan B free agency which I thought was the compromise that really worked the best for the quality of the league. But then the league mm-hmm. the league lost when the Players Association took Plan B free agency into the courts, and they got knocked mm-hmm. down in the court system, saying was antitrust and collusion, et cetera, et cetera, and they disallowed Plan B. And it's a shame mm-hmm. because it was the best plan for everybody and allowed the NFL to maintain continuity and quality. And when it was ruled illegal, okay, and the league had to disband plan B and they had to open up unrestricted free agency and they had to install salary caps. Well, guess what? That was the beginning of the demise of the overall quality of the league and the beginning of salaries that started to spike on the high end of the spectrum. And what you have now is a situation where Nothing is stopping the upscale spike of the highest salaried players in the league. 
And I don't know where it stops. We got a quarterback now as a result of last night's deal getting, what, $35 million a year on the cap? That's crazy. That's well, crazy. Yeah, but, I mean, once again, the salary cap continues to increase. Player salary is going to increase simultaneously. So, I mean, that's no, just going to no, be they, the but continuous they don't, trend. But they don't. The high-end guys increase. The low-end guys don't. Because teams can't afford to give too many middle-of-the-road contracts. They're giving all the superstars the big, over-bloated contracts. That's not exactly, good for the league. Paulie, exactly, Well, but, I mean, I don't. first of all, I don't think it's taken away from the quality of the league because you have a number of teams every year that have a legitimate shot to win the Super Bowl. And that's more than you could say than other professional sports where in the NBA, which is so top-heavy with talent, that only four or five teams have a legitimate right, shot. Right. So I, I actually, I think it's benefiting Lance, the league. Lance, it's, Lance, no, it's Lance, not. Lance. It's crazy. That's Lance, crazy. that's not true. What are you talking about? Look at the league since the year 2000. I mean, my God, Brady, the Manning brothers. Yeah, you're looking. Well, no, you're looking. Yeah, you're 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 looking. Well, you're looking at the Super Bowl winner, but I'm talking about the turnover rate in the playoffs. There's about four new teams that make the playoffs every single year. So there actually is a high turnover rate where it's very difficult to continue to get back to the postseason. All right, all right. Remember, a small percentage of teams make the playoffs. Tony, I can handle. Tony, hold on, hold on a minute. Tony, I can handle this guy. It's okay. I can handle him. It's not a matter of handling. Look, think about this. A team nowadays invests a ton of money in a quarterback. The guy gets hurt. Everybody does The backup quarterbacks are not nearly as qualified but everybody's as they in the were same years boat, ago. Yep. Most teams are but not that's not good. In that's not good. Well, but we've been we've been like that for decades now. And it stinks. I don't see how it stinks. It's just it's a matter terrible. of you need to do your homework in the draft to get young players ready to Ask play. Ask the Jets what happened when Testaverde got hurt. He ripped his Achilles and they had to put Ray Lucas in and Bill Parcells and the Jets' potential Super Bowl team well, but, was ruined. But every ruined. team is like that when Aaron Rodgers goes And how's down, that good for the league? But that's that's the rate of inter- when in the NBA when you lose a star player you're going to tell me the NBA team is not impacted. That's, how is it? How is it different? But in the old days of the NFL, if your star quarterback got hurt, you had a guy who yeah. so so Bob Paul, Greasy got hurt. Earl Marwell came in. Okay. The Dolphins so went to Paul, the Super Bowl. So Paul, your answer is come so, on, if man. The, hold on, Paul. If the NFL Back is hold on, if the if the Back NFL is uncapped, Tony. If the NFL is uncapped, okay, then that means the owners with the deepest pockets will be able to buy out all the top caliber talent. And that means we'd have the equivalency mm-hmm. of what Major League Baseball is like, where there's not a hard cap, and if the owner wants to spend, spend, and spend, the owner will go out and spend, and spend, and spend. So I don't see exactly how that alternative is any better for the quality but, and but balance of the league. Potential, here's my potential solution, because i got a question for you. My potential solution is try and let these guys negotiate after two years, because you could be on a rookie deal for five years on franchise if you're a first round pick. two, and not have the right to negotiate your contract after seven years. What job works that way? Of course they're going to try to beat you over the head with a contract. <laughs> when those are the work conditions, I mean, you know, and we're talking about a contract negotiation that occurred before you even played high school football. So, but, 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 but here's my question before so I let you guys go. Go ahead, Tony. I heard that um, from a talking head that the Giants need 20 players. I'm not saying 20 starters. But we need players, like guys that can play, not bodies. We need players. So first, do you agree with that point? And, I'll, and I'm going to let you go after this. And second, do you think we should use all of this year's draft picks to pick players, or should we try and move up and get more premium picks? Because I also believe that scouting in the NFL is way better than it's ever been, and finding these, you know, these diamonds are getting harder every single year. Thanks, guys. Love the show. All right, Tony. Appreciate the phone I'll call. let you take the first part. Well, I mean, 20 players. Listen, you need good players, period. I mean, to put a number <laughs> on it is the most ridiculous statement I have ever heard. I mean, you only got 53 guys on a roster. So you're saying that the Giants need to turn over half their roster for already what they turned over? I mean, that to me is a little bit of hyperbole. I agree, yes, they need to continue to bring in playmakers. I don't think 12 draft picks are going to make the roster between the practice squad and the 53. So I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to package a few picks to move up to get better premium players. I don't think there's anything wrong with that okay, philosophy. Okay, I totally agree. They should try to package and move up and improve their positions in in, in the rounds, uh, potentially not the second, but certainly the third round. If they can improve their position in the third, I would absolutely advocate that. In terms of how many players are the Giants away, I think they are five or six important contributing players away from being a playoff team again. And you'd like to believe that Sam Beal, 
will be one of those guys. And as I've said many times before, um, I think the Giants need four rookies, okay? They need four rookies to come in and have a significant impact on this team if they can make the jump into being a playoff team this year. And Beal can be one of them. And now they need they need three others. And then I also believe through free agency, you know, they can get a significant contributor or two. Maybe maybe Golden Tate is one of those guys. Maybe Jabril Peppers in the trade was one of those guys. Zeitler was one of those guys. Whoever it turns out to be. I do think that it's a much smaller number than they need 20 new guys on the roster. I don't know that you're going to have a 20 turnover. Yeah, 20 I mean, that's a turnover. lot. That's that a is a lot. Number. That, and, and then the other point I want to make, and it's on the back end of what you, what you said about the scouting, here's the problem. The college game has morphed to such a degree that the projection of what these scouts are forced to do when they look at a college player and say, now we've got to fit him into the NFL scheme is wider than it used to be, okay? It used to be a lot easier because the the gap between the NFL schemes and the college schemes was clearly defined, and you had, for example, offensive linemen who played in the three-point stance in college years ago. Now, they're all playing in the two-point stance, and they get to the NFL, and they got to play in the three-point stance. That causes a gap and a projection that you now have to make on a player. That makes it a heck of a lot more difficult than it ever was before. You also have quarterbacks now who are running these spread systems, okay, where they're never taking a snap under center in college. It's all shotgun. Now they come to the NFL and they have to learn technique. They have to learn footwork, timing. How do we backpedal and set our feet before we throw the ball? That makes for a nasty projection for a scout as he tries to figure out, okay, how does this guy project to the pro game? So those are things, okay, those are things that have made the job more difficult for the scout, no matter how good you think they are or how improved you think they are. In some areas, the job is much more difficult. Let's head back to the phone lines. Will is in Houston. Will, what's happening? Hey, guys, appreciate you taking my call today. Hi. Thanks for making the call. What's on your mind? Yeah, so uh, I joined the call a little late, so I didn't get a chance to hear who all you guys had on the day. But yesterday you had on the reporter here in town from Houston. And uh, no surprise, and being, I guess you'd call me a homer, I'm super high on Ed Oliver. If he's there at number six, it's going to be really, really hard for me to not want to take him at six uh, with the talent and the upside. He just has such a high ceiling to me compared to the other prospects that could be there at number six. Yeah, I'm with you. I think if Oliver's there at six, I think the Giants should heavily consider him. I am just as high on Oliver as you are. I like his versatility. I think you play inside and outside. There's a lot to like about him there. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. And and one of the, you know, I guess one of the knocks that we kind of get pushed back on from other fans is that we already have Tomlinson and, and B.J. Hill. Uh, you know, when you look at the, the front we could have with the 3-4, and obviously we play more of a four-man front than most any other just because of the way the personnel packages work now. But, I mean, with a three-man front looking at Hill as a three and Tomlinson as a one and um, and then have Oliver as a five, that's a nasty three-man front. I mean, good luck getting a yard on fourth and one from Ezekiel Elliott with that front. And then well, and when you, you can... go to a four-man front, you know, in your nickel and dime packages, I mean, just slide Tomlinson out, then you got Hill and, uh, and uh, Oliver there as your two tackles with, you know, hopefully another first-round pass rusher, and then Lorenzo Carter. That's a nasty format front there too. So it would just it would be really hard for me to pass on a player like that, and a prospect like that. Well, and, you, you can't know, just, you can't necessarily just look at it at who's on the roster. I think volume is important at that position. Philadelphia in the division, they've loaded up on a variety of defensive linemen. They rotate the guys so that nobody's tired in the fourth quarter. And to your point. I think B.J. Hill could be inside and outside. Tomlinson, remember, was outside a bit when Snacks was here. So you have the flexibility to move those guys around. That The point is you'd be maximizing the roster because you wouldn't be relying on just one or two guys playing 90% of the snaps, which is what happened when you had JPP and Vernon here with Spags. And that was because there was a significant drop-off from the starters to the back end of the depth chart. Did they address his knee injury yesterday when you guys had the Houston guy on? He didn't seem to be concerned. I believe okay. we had one question related to that. I don't remember there being any red flag. We did ask about a run-in with his first head coach, 
and it was about, you know, a jacket that he was wearing on the sideline. That didn't seem to be an issue. He's been, you know, on perfect behavior since. But no red flags in terms of health or, or behavior at all that was brought up by Ted Party, who we had on, who's there, our radio color commentator. What yeah, else you got, he Will? Was, he, was, he, he was so underutilized in that scheme, too. I mean, it didn't, it didn't play to his strengths at all. He's an attacking defensive tackle that can play up the field. I think he would fit in great with Betcher's scheme. He wouldn't be asked to eat up three blocks at once in Metro's scheme. That would be ridiculous. But and then and then I got one more thing, and then I'm gonna let you guys go. Paul, you you brought this up a, a few times, uh, and, and I'm not I'm not looking at maybe choosing one specific player or per position, but I do think that getting three defensive starters and one offensive tackle that should be the goal in the first four rounds of this draft. I don't care when they're selected, uh, and I you know just maybe someone in the defensive secondary, whether it be a corner or more of a versatile defensive back that can play safety or corner. But I think having three defensive players and an offensive back somewhere in the first four rounds, that's where I would go. And I think Oliver would be my number one there, too. But uh, I'll let you guys go with that. I appreciate taking the call. All right. All right, Will. Thank Thanks you very much. And uh, he, he's echoing my sentiments exactly, and I appreciate that. It shows he, he's listening carefully. Not everybody does. Uh, the value at those positions does equate to the first three rounds of this draft where the Giants do have four picks. That just seems to, to, to be a good match for value meeting need. Well, we've talked about it ever since the draft speculation started. This is a pass rusher defensive line draft. You know, corner I don't think is as deep. Offensive line is not as deep. But I do think when you get into the second round, there's going to be valuable options still on the board. And it just depends on how the Giants have prioritized those positions, what their board looks like. But I also would not rule out if they do like a player and they think that they could be groomed to help out over the longevity of the rookie contract, I would not rule that out either. It's not just about the 2019 roster. It's about what they can do beyond that as well. It's going to wrap up the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, which is presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes. Be back up and running tomorrow. Washington is going to be the, the last school that we have to cover. Everything else will be national big picture draft experts as we make our way to next Thursday. So it has been a long journey, which thankfully is coming near to a conclusion. <laughs> For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday, and always stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.